Hey, listeners, this interview was recorded back in December with David Mearns. Make sure you listen all the way through for an exciting update on our conversation. Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Today, we're going to be talking with David Mearns, oceanographer and Guinness World Record holder, a charter marine scientist. David has won awards as an expedition leader of deep sea ocean projects, and he's one of the world's most experienced and successful deep sea shipwreck hunters. He's located over 25 major ships and has been awarded five Guinness World Records, including finding the deepest shipwreck ever. He's the author of The Shipwreck Hunter, a memoir told through some of the most important shipwrecks he's ever found. You're not going to want to miss these stories. Some of them include the covering up of the perfect murder, as well as the historical significance of some of World War II's most important ships and shipwrecks. David received his master's degree in marine biology from the University of South Florida. So the fact that he's a fellow bull makes this interview all the more exciting. Please join me in welcoming best-selling author and shipwreck hunter, David Mertz. Well, David, thanks for, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's, it's very nice to be here and, and, and actually be in Florida. Not quite uh, where you are, but in Florida uh, when I'm speaking to you as opposed to across the Atlantic. Well, we're lucky to have you while you were on uh, on holiday, so it's great great to have you. And you've written a book called The Shipwreck Hunter, which, in addition to being just a, a really cool title for a book, is also a really cool title for a profession, and it's yours. Tell us about what you do and why you wrote the book. It is as it says. I'm a shipwreck hunter, and it took me a long time to admit that that was my profession because it's a uh, you know to say to somebody you're a shipwreck hunter, the first thing they can't quite believe it. They've never heard of anything before, and uh, but that's what I do. I find and, and film uh, and investigate uh, for a variety of purposes, um, shipwrecks predominantly in the deep ocean. And, and when I say deep, I mean uh, seriously deep. The average depth of the shipwrecks I have found is, is over 3,000 meters. So that's about 10,000 feet. And, and we've gone down to nearly 6,000 meters or, or 20,000 feet. Uh, and th- this is my third book, and essentially it was meant to be a career memoir, and it's essentially a, my greatest hits. Uh, I've been fortunate enough in my career to have found um, and discovered some very important and famous shipwrecks, and each of those shipwreck stories behind them deserves almost a book in, in and of itself. And this was a way in, in sort of a telling the story of my sort of 35 year career of finding shipwrecks and individual chapters about each one. And it, it, it plots my own growth in terms of a professional, but also the, um, the field, you know, the technology that I use, which is, uh, you know, without that, you know, we wouldn't be doing anything. Well, you, uh, you talked about the depth that you found some of these, these ships and these greatest hits. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're underselling it a little bit. Uh, there's several Guinness World Records uh, that are included in, in your career. And, David, I remember being a kid and going through, I always had the book, the Guinness Book of World Records book as a kid. And I would try to figure out which ones could I possibly compete for. I think if I would have gotten to the page on finding a ship of depth, I probably would have skipped that one thinking I'm never going to get that one. So you're a kid. I mean, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that this would be your profession? 
No, but like you, I loved the Guinness Book, and we had an old copy. You know, they're nothing like the copies today, these highly produced glossy ones. And I love going through it and reading because they're just fascinating, aren't they? And, and yes, I did the same thing. What could we do? And I remember once making a yo-yo extra long, and we went on a tower and tried to do a yo-yo. We thought we could do that. So, no, I had no idea that... Uh, I'd ever uh, feature in the book. And in the end, uh, over the course of my career, my, my company, myself, we've, we've gotten five. I think we hold maybe two or three current ones. And um, that's pretty cool. And it's a, it's a nice way to talk to the public about an unusual profession because everybody understands what the Guinness record is like. That's been a fun thing. But in answer to your, your main question, no, I, you know, growing up as a kid in New Jersey, uh, in the shadow of New York City, I had no idea this is what uh, I could do as a profession. And all that I really wanted to do when I really got interested in being more academic and taking high school seriously is aim for a college education as a marine scientist, a marine biologist. And that's really where I got my start. I want to talk to you about your education, but before we do that, you know, you, there's this part in the book where you're talking about growing up in New Jersey, and one the thing that stuck with me the most was this uh, this picture that you paint of you driving around with your dad looking for things. And I, I thought to myself, you know, if there was ever a foreshadow in your book about what you'd be doing later in life, like that was that was the moment to me. So I guess my question is, tell tell us about that experience with your dad, and and do you ever look back on that as it relates to your current profession? There are, even though my, my father was an antique dealer, and, and, and so that's buying and selling mostly furniture and, and older objects. And, and we could buy these sort of underappreciated objects in New Jersey and then literally drive them over the Hudson River into New York City and sell them. And it was something um, that I helped him with because we had to handle this furniture. And, and I developed a very good eye for it. And I think of my, the sense, your five senses, even though I'm wearing glasses, my visual sense is one of my strongest. And that actually does help in interpreting the type of imagery, the sonar imagery that we use to, to find shipwrecks and having the imagination and the understanding to look at imagery and, and see things that maybe other people would miss. So that definitely was a, a skill or a natural talent that I had that I could see in my career actually helped me along. Um, I have no sense of smell or taste. So thank God I wasn't the chef. <laughs> you, you and me both, you and me both. Although I'm not sure my visual senses are much better. You know, I think before I read your book, if somebody would have said, hey, what's a shipwreck hunter? What would have come to mind is a treasure hunter. You know, you go and you try to find, you know, buried treasure. I mean, um, all of us are at least, you know, certainly I'm like a, you know, five-year-old boy at heart, right? But that's not what you do. And I think actually what you do is far more interesting than that. So, I, you know, you had talked about you find ships for a variety of different reasons. You know, if you were to tell the public, what is a shipwreck hunter as it relates to your career? How, how would you describe it? You're finding shipwrecks for, because of some disaster generally, whether it, 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 it sank in a storm, a collision, it has been scuttled, an act of war. And so ultimately, you're finding that ship to, to see where it is, first off, because you know, most of the ships that I found are pre-electronic navigation, GPS. So when it sinks, we don't really know where it is. So there is that moment of discovery. And, and that's an important part of it. In the first instance, where is the ship? You know, I mean, you can look at it today with the aircraft, the case that everybody 
knows about, which is MH370. We don't know where it is. And some ships are like that as well. And that's part of the story. And then once you get down to the bottom, what caused it to sink? If, the, if there's an accident investigation, there's a high loss of life, you're trying to retell, maybe recreate a battle sequence between two ships. And you have one side of the story, but not the other side of the story. And the damage that you can visibly see on a ship is the evidence of what actually happened, as opposed to people's imperfect evidence in the fog of war. So I've been hired by insurance companies, foreign governments. I've done a murder trial. Somebody blew a ship up and killed people for insurance fraud. And then also we make the odd television documentary. David, tell us about the Lutona. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking about it when you were talking about evidence. And I'm thinking, here's a guy who's involved in not just a murder trial, but one of the, the most you know, uh, famous murder trials in the history of that country. So you know, how, how did you get involved in that? And, and you know, how is that experience a little, bit, a little bit different than maybe some of your other shipwreck experiences? That was my first major shipwreck investigation that I was put in charge for as the expert witness to the Austrian court. So his background, this was somebody who had a conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. He loaded a ship with cargo, said it was very valuable uranium processing equipment and insured it for $18 million. And when he loaded it, he put a time bomb in it, blew the ship up, killed half the crew, and then tried to collect the insurance. And the he was ultimately, over a very long period of time, was uh, apprehended uh, and brought to trial for a conspiracy to commit murder and, and this insurance fraud. And uh, we were hired by the Austrian criminal court trying this man, Udo Proch, on, on these charges. And uh, my company, an American company, won the contract. Uh, I had that skill in finding things. And I was uh, appointed the project manager, expert witness. And um, this was, we built a whole new suite of equipment in six months, deep water sonars, deep water ROVs, found the shipwreck and showed that it had blown up from a bomb in the forward part of the ship. In three weeks to the day that we presented our evidence in court, he was found guilty and, and, and sentenced uh, ultimately to life in prison. And so it's a, an epic story to start your first cut your teeth on as a young practitioner. And, but it really set me off, my, my company and myself, uh, as a business and me personally on this path of, of pursuing more and more shipwreck investigations. Well, as somebody who was a, I was a homicide prosecutor for, for a number of years. So you, you grabbed me instantly uh, in the book and uh, in, in talking about the Lucona and the case and how this guy really thought he had kind of committed the perfect murder, right? He was going to get all this money from the insurance company. Uh, nobody was ever going to be able to prove it. Uh, but you helped do that. And it really had not only convicted him, but it had political implications, right? In, all, in, in the country. Oh, yeah. Well, the whole Lacona affair brought down the Austrian government in the mid 80s. You know, I, I, I telling it in a straightforward sort of boring manner, but actually it's just, it's a compelling story. And, and we're actually talking with producers now about bringing it to Netflix for the series because it's, it's that kind of how that you couldn't make it up, the kind of things that went on. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's totally, totally amazing. You've had all these, you talked about how the book was, you know, sort of your greatest hits of, of ships that you found. And I'd be curious, and, and maybe you, you didn't say this by design in the book, but is there one in particular that you feel like is, is the most important to you, even if it wasn't the most significant maybe to people or to the world, the one that you feel like was the most significant to you to find? 
And I get asked that question a lot. And I, and my stock answer is it's impossible to pick one because it's like picking your favorite child. And they're all important for different reasons. And there are about five or six. And I think most of them are in the book. To me personally, over the length of my career is HMS Hood. And this is the British battle cruiser that was sunk in the battle with Bismarck in World War II. And with a nearly total loss of life out of 1,418 men, only three survived. So it's the greatest loss in British naval history. Bismarck had been found by Bob Ballard, who hadn't been found. So it was a major discovery. And we actually did this 20 years ago. And I've had a, almost a, a career long or a 25, 26 year relationship with the Hood Association. The, one of the survivors who was still alive when we, when we found the wreck and I brought him out to the scene so he could pay his respects and lay a plaque on the wreck. We've also recovered a bell from the wreck and that's now in a museum in England in Portsmouth. So there's been this, uh, you know, nearly, you know, two and a half decade um, connection with that ship and that type of project where you're, you're not being hired by anybody, you're actually developing it, you're raising the money to do it, you're getting sponsors on board, and you're really sort of doing something almost impossible, um, taught me how to do that. And, and, and since then, uh, you know, I take on other projects like this that are almost impossible and they take many years, but with persistence, um, we can get them done. And, and I, I'd say probably Hood is the most important for that reason. Yeah. Well, I, I am glad you picked that because it was the, the one I certainly felt the most was the most fascinating, the most personal in the book. So it definitely comes through. You know what? Let's talk about the Hood a little bit to kind of illustrate you know, how this process, because it's not like, you know, people just call you on the phone and say, Hey, go find the ship. And, you know, you hop in the boat and go, this was a multi-year process for you to really even get to the opportunity to, to go and find the ship. And it seems like part of that is you become, you become a historian about the boat, about the people who are on it, about what happened, what the stories are. So tell us about that historical process that you have to go through in order to understand what it is you're looking for and why it matters. Well, in any search involving a ship of that age, the key information is in archives. It's all historical information in documents that are kept in archives, in, in this case, mostly in the UK National Archives in England, in London. And that's one of the reasons why moving to England when I did was really fortuitous, because it put me in, in proximity to those archives. And so what I'm talking about is accounts, survivors' accounts, German accounts, uh, witnesses, ships that came along later and rescued them. And within that information are navigational clues to where the, the accident took place, or in this case, the battle. So it's positions, latitude, longitudes, courses, speeds, anything that you can use that could be analyzed to actually decide what is the most probable sinking location of that shipwreck. Unlike what most people would think, we don't search an X. There's no, you don't go to the archives and you find a map with an X and say, HMS Hood sunk here. You, you find all these disparate clues, you analyze them. And then what you come up with is a box. We search boxes. Now within that box, there's the most probable place that the ship sank, but you don't know where it sank until you find it on the seabed. And, and that is the, the sort of historical slash detective work 
of actually um, going out and actually finding a ship. And, and during that time, obviously, you learn about the history, the characters, the German side, the British side, and that's part of what we tried to do. Why do we find the ship? To retell that story to a modern audience with new information. Which is kind of a cool thing for a scientist to say, right? I mean, the you know, here we are, you're, you're finding these two ships, you have the hood, the Bismarck, which uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's certainly at the time, the two most important ships to, to Britain and to Germany uh, at that period of time were, were the Bismarck and, and the HMS Hood. And, you know, you're telling this story now to a modern audience about the, the folks who were on these two ships. Um, when, you, when you go about doing that, you mentioned the survivor on the hood. I think it was Ted, if I remember correctly from the book, but you, you developed this relationship from one of the very few survivors of the hood. And there's, it seems like this process you go through with him over time about getting him comfortable to even go look for the ship. And then, you know, getting the comfortable to take pictures of the ship and then ultimately remove the bell. It was interesting to me that, you know, in your time as a scientist, nobody probably took you aside and said, let me train you on talking about, you know, how victims and trauma and how to go about, you know, going through that process. So, you know, what was that like for you to interact with him and the many victims of family members of these survivors of these ships over the years? It's become the most important part of what I do is really dealing with that human side of it, because at the end of the day, there's a human story or, or sometimes many, many human stories to every one of these incidents. The ship is an inanimate object made of steel or wood or whatever, but it's the humanity that was within that ship that, that really people connect with. And I was fortunate enough on another project, a, a loss of a ship called the Derbyshire. This is a merchant vessel, boat carrier, where everybody died. Uh, 44 people, 42 crew and two wives. And I was able to connect with the, the, the relatives, the widows, the widowers, and really understand what they were going through and how important it was for them, just for us to tell them the location of the ship. Even though they roughly knew it's in the Pacific off of Okinawa, for us to tell them the precise location, this really was really important to them. And, and I think it gets Back to this issue of people, it's sort of a double tragedy because the relatives, the people left behind, they've lost somebody. They'll never see them again. And also they don't know where they are. If you have a relative who dies and you, they can be buried, well, then you know where they are. You can visit that grave. You have that sense of still of some sort of connection to them. But when they're lost anywhere in the ocean. To me, that is a double tragedy. And when we can help them with dealing with that, getting some sort of closure, I've seen it firsthand with people. You know, that was the same situation with Ted Briggs, this, the last survivor of, of Hood. He, you know, was a boy sailor. He was basically 18 years old. One day he's in a ship with 1,418 men. The next moment, literally, he's with two other guys floating on a raft. They send him home to England. He's all by himself. He can't talk to his parents really about this. He can't process this huge traumatic uh, event in his life. And then for the rest of his life, he's known as the guy who survived. There's no doubt that Ted suffered PTSD as a result of this. So to bring him back to the actual right over the top of the wreck site on a ship where through telepresence, we could connect him to the ship and the men that was on board in the way that he was able to release the plaque, mechanically release the plaque. That 
was huge in his lifetime, even at the age of 79. You know, I never saw him more relaxed about dealing with Hood as I did that day on that ship, despite the fact it was a very stressful environment. And that taught me a lot about how to help people uh, resolve their loss and their pain through these investigations. And really today, it's what drives me in selecting new projects, ones that are meaningful and that have a legacy, not, not for me professionally, many more people. Some of the, the, you include some pictures in the book about some of the sites, and I think some of the, the most emotional are the plaques you just mentioned, where you, you've had the family members or the survivors write something to mark the grave. And I, it seems like that was a significant moment for you, but also a significant moment for the, for the families who were left behind. You know, they, can, they all can't come out to sea with us like Ted Briggs, but if, if they can be involved in creating uh, a plaque, um, it's, it's essentially a headstone. You know, a, a grave has a headstone. This is the nearest underwater and deep water that we can do in, in laying some sort of memorial to those who have been lost. And if the families themselves can be involved with the creation of that, the design of that, um, and making sure that their, the name of their loved one who was lost is on that plaque, that's, that's important to them. And, and you know, I've, I've seen that multiple times. What is it, um, you know, you talked about Ted and, and I'm sure, you know, there's been survivors to some of these ships. It seems like there's also a, a significant amount of almost shame that they feel uh, for having survived, which I think is something that we've seen in war phenomenons. Is that, is that something that you've seen with survivors of shipwrecks? That's a hard one because um, that's in, inside someone's innermost feelings, which sometimes they may not share. And, and whether it's shame or guilt or questioning why, um, I know they're deeply uh, affected and, and, and a number of times I've, I've dealt uh, personally with a survivor who's, you know, in their 80s and they are extremely emotional about it uh, to the point of tears. And I just think of a, of, a, of a grown man having a reason to cry for any reason. They must feel some sort of intense pain or emotion. And I've seen it with Ted. I've seen it with the survivor from the center, Martin Pash. And, and so if finding it helps them release that, then, you know, that's a benefit as well. I first got your book from uh, Peter Betzer, who is, uh, I know you know Peter well, and he's a former dean of the College of Marine Science at USF St. Petersburg. But, you know, he gave me your book and it was sort of a kind of, a, I think, a proud moment for him because he said to me, hey, this is this, you'll love this book. It's one of our, our alumni that we're very proud of. Uh, so you're an alumni of, of US, the College of Marine Science at USF St. Pete. What kind of role did that play in, in your career as a shipwreck hunter? It got me started in a way because it introduced me to the technology. The tool that I used to do most of my research, my, my master's thesis research, was a side scan sonar. And that's the exact same tool that we use um, for finding shipwrecks. It's, it's far more sophisticated today. Uh, now we're, we're dealing with doing it all, almost autonomously, um, but having that basic skill and also not just that, the responsibility to operate those systems at sea. And that came directly from my major professor, Al Hine, um, uh, geological oceanographer. Al's big gift to his students, he'd, he'd be able to get the funding for us to get seed time. We'd all go to sea together 
And we'd all have our individual responsibilities for certain pieces of equipment. And, and it really relied on us. And that, that taught me about going to sea and the preciousness of, of time at sea. You know, they're, they're very valuable moments. The ships cost a lot of money. You have to write grants to get them. So you don't waste a second of your day. And, uh, and, and those are lessons I, I got directly from USF and specifically from Al Hine. I love that you had told me, and I think you actually had tweeted it at one point, there was an article about how USF St. Pete is trying to build out the College of Marine Science to really you know, upgrade it in very significant ways. And you said, you know, even though this would bulldoze my old office, um, I'm really, really excited about it because it could really raise the stature of, of the education around marine science, not just for the U.S., but for the world. Is that, is that how you feel? Oh, absolutely. So I'm really pleased to hear about this, this initiative. And and, uh, and, and I understand you've had a major role in, in making that happen. And, uh, and yes, you know, the peninsula is an amazing location. And, and the only thing it's, it's stuck with this very old building um, and, and where my old office, all of our offices were. It was a bit of a bomb-proof place because, you know, it, survive, it will survive anything. So it'll be tough to knock it down and probably. It'll take a lot of, a lot of, a lot of diggers and bulldozers. But uh, I could imagine you know, the, the kind of gleaming new, you know, 21st century and beyond um, scientific uh, research labs and, and center that will be put there. And, and absolutely no doubt with all the other things that the St. Pete Bay Borough area has added after my time, because I, I left in 86, you, I don't think you can compare it to anywhere else that I know of in the U.S. in terms of the the breadth and variety of marine related research institutions that are all somehow linked together working for a common common goal of understanding the environment and particularly today you know with the environment that is a threat the way it is you know i'm lucky enough that i i've asked i'm asked back to uh usf to give talks they've given me an, a couple of awards and i'm one of the lines that i say is uh I'm proud to be from a, a, a university graduate school that if I were to apply today, I wouldn't be accepted. <laughs> <laughs> They've added value to your degree, right? That's exactly what I say. I tell people my degree is far more valuable today because of what the university, you know, the growth uh, that it's gone through. And yes, you know, so I was really lucky to get in when I got in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if the marine science folks were on this uh, podcast, they'd probably say you, you've helped to add significant value to that degree. So I'm sure they would say that it'd be right. It, you know, you, it's interesting. I'm sure when you were at school there and, and learning about marine science and the technology that you use, um, you know, I don't know how important the, the storytelling was, but, you know, David, you're a, you're a storyteller. I mean, you've, you've told the stories of, of these ships that you found, about the families, about the survivors, about the people who were on board, about the significance to countries um, around these ships. How important is it of us to purposefully find ways to take the sciences and kind of marry them with the humanities, marry them with a story so that people who aren't necessarily scientifically inclined could have an attachment to the to the work that's done. I well, I, I personally think that's very important. Maybe that's an area where I do have some talent because despite the awards I've been given, I wasn't a brilliant student. I'm not one of the best scientists. I, I, I didn't leave with a PhD. It took me much longer to get a master's than most people, but I did have this ability to 
distill complicated subjects down to uh, a way of communicating with people. And, and, and I think that storytelling is important. And, and even at a very high level, it's very important to communicate science that way. And, and, and today, you know, far more important than it was, you know, decades ago in terms of using social media and, and everybody, that's how we get our information about the world. Somebody's got to tell it to us. And scientists have got to do a, 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 probably a better job. We can always do better jobs, but in communicating science, when people are at this moment trying to decide what's real, what's fake, and questioning scientists. And I think that's really important. And, and I think USF does a good job of that, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I, you talk about in the book, I got a little excited. You were talking about the book several times, you mentioned it um, about coastal mapping, which is something that we're doing a lot of in Tampa Bay. But more importantly, in the Florida House, um, this past session, we, we made it a priority to put $100 million into. Well, we said coastal mapping. You talk about mapping the ocean floor, but into coastal mapping to, to map the underwater topography of Florida's coastline, which I think a lot of people would think has been done, but it really hasn't um, in any big way. So that's something we put significant resources behind, um, you know, mapping the, 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 the coastline. Tell us why you think that's important. Well, it's the basic map of the world, um, 70%, 71% of, the, uh, of our planet is covered by, um, by water, by the oceans. And you, know, you can go on your smartphone and, and see very detailed topography of land masses you know, to the point where you can pick out boulders and rocks and, and with Google Earth, but underneath the oceans, we don't know what's there. We, we've mapped in sort of reasonable resolution, only less than 20% of, the, of, the, of, of our planet in, in terms of the oceans. Um, we have more detailed maps of Mars than we do have our own planet. So it's the baseline for us to be able to understand our own planet, the processes, the changes, and to build research questions off of that. And no doubt the 100 million that the, your state is, is spending is geared towards the the Seabed 2030 initiative, which is to map our planet in, in, with, uh, at, at that resolution. And it's not even the most defined rev resolution, but good enough um, by 2030. And, and we're now up to about, the last survey was about 19%. But I know Florida has one of the biggest continental shelves um, on the Western coast into the Gulf of Mexico that you know probably doubles if you really think of it, almost doubles the landmass of Florida. It is a resource for the country. It needs to be protected. And for it to be protected, you have to understand what you're protecting. And, and so that's the first step. Yeah, that's, that's well said. I, you know, it's, it was interesting to me when we, we did the research, just how much we could do if we knew, if we knew what the, the topography looked like, whether it's knowing where sand deposits are, which is the most mined mineral in the world, understanding our real, our true risk of storm surge by being able to understand the, the math that goes into the coastline. So uh, I was really, really happy that you spent time talking about that, because I do think that for the, for the most of the public, you know, you don't wake up one morning and say, gosh, I hope my legislators are working on, you know, mapping the underwater topography of our coast. And, 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 and the USF, a college of marine science really could take a, uh, a leading role in that in this new center for ocean mapping and innovative technologies.
that I understand has been recently funded in partnership with NOAA is, is the way to go. And, and specifically the way to go now is, is using autonomous technologies and artificial intelligence to be able to do this far more uh, efficiently and, and, uh, than, than we did in, in the past. Um, and, and that's, you know, I'm really pleased to see that. that. When I was at USF, they were very good at science, but what we didn't have was the engineering and technological backup and that's what now I think is propelling USF CMS into the upper echelons of marine science research institutes in the US. And if you're leading in the US, chances are you're leading in the world. That's awesome. We're gonna we're gonna continue to help them help them do that. I uh, you know it's interesting. You, you, I think you could have you certainly could have ended your book after talking about some of these greatest hits. And I so appreciate that you did it. And at the end. You essentially say, you know, people ask me all the time, what's next? You know, what's what's on your, your biggest wish list? And two things I really appreciated. One, that you actually had one that you talked about. And then two, that you said you keep adding to it, which I, which I appreciated. But tell us about, you know, you put on there, one of them in particular, which I liked was the endurance. Uh, Edward Shackleton's, uh, you know, ship that he used to explore the Arctic. Why is that important to you? It's the ultimate challenge. In terms of finding a shipwreck um, in the most difficult environment in the world, um, a, a deep shipwreck, 3,000 meters, uh, and then also with this, the, you know, one of the greatest stories of all time. Um, fortunately, everybody survives, so we're not dealing with any loss of life. But if you combine all those elements, uh, to me, that was the real challenge, the excitement of, of doing something that is almost impossible. And, and that's the starting point. Then it's the research and coming up with stories and, and finding information, even though this is probably one of the most well-researched and written about um, episodes, Shackleton saving of all his men. You know, I, I myself and my own research has been a, have been able to uncover things that other people haven't and focused on them. And then also I've, again, made a connection with the Shackleton family and specifically um, uh, Sir Ernest's granddaughter, Alexandra Shackleton, uh, Zaz, we call her. She's a very good friend of mine. And, um, and, and she uh, has been supportive of me throughout this. And in this instance, what we again want to do, even though Shackleton's story is, has, has been told in books and in film and everything like that, is, is using the shipwreck as a platform with new technology to, to shed new light on it and, and tell that story to a modern audience. You mentioned there's a lot of books about Shackleton and the ones that I've read were really more about, less about the ship and less about him being a famous explorer and more about his leadership and you know, what, kind of, what kind of leader he was. I think I read a book called Shackleton's Way. That's right. It was, you know, a great book. And I, one of the things that stuck out to me, and I'd be curious how this has been applicable to your career, is I think he's, there was some sort of reference that hey, I didn't pick the best people out there for the ship. I picked the right people to be on the ship together to work as kind of a team. And I thought like nobody would really say that, but it's so true to pick the right people. I mean, have you, is that something you've experienced as you've gone out and to find these, these ships in such deep water that, hey, I need the, I need the right people uh, who can work together as part of the team? 
Yes, you need the right skills, certainly. So um, what we're doing today is probably more skill intensive than what Shackleton did, but you need the right characters. So you need uh, people who can get along. Um, Going to see, you know, for a 30-day expedition, which had been in the planning for years, is almost by its nature a high-pressure environment because time is precious and at the end of those 30 days, if you haven't achieved your objective, found your shipwreck, you come away completely empty, a zero. There's no 50% level of success, 80% level of success. It's a zero. So you need the right characters to people who can uh, can contribute, work together, um, and get along together. And, and that's a lesson from Shackleton. For example, you know, one of my favorite characters is the physicist, Reginald James, they called him Gentle Jimmy. He was a brilliant uh, uh, physicist, came out of Cambridge at 23 years old. Shackleton didn't ask him anything about his physics. He asked him if he could sing, (laughs) you know? And and he asked him, he he said, can you deal with the cold? And he said, well, you know, I've got a finger that gets a little bit tingly. And he said, well, you won't mind losing that, will you? <laughs> so, it's a heck of a job interview. Yeah, So, and it only took five minutes. So he, <laughs> he asked things about, is this guy going to be able to get on with the crew? And in tough times, is he going to have the right attitude and the right personality to get through it? And if there's a hardship to the point of losing the, the odd finger or two, is, is he, can he, you know, is he up for that? And um, what Shackleton didn't realize is that uh, Reginald James later on made a key contribution to the navigation of the ship that essentially could have resulted in saving everybody's lives. And and this is something that came out through my research. So Shackleton wasn't picking him for that. He was picking him that he knew that that skill was there because he came from Cambridge. He said, I don't need to investigate, you know, whether he knows physics or what formula he understands. I can take in that as red, but as a character, is he the right person to take to see? And, and yes, you know, we all, we take these lessons um, from Shackleton and, and, um, and that's why, you know, that, that I have the same book. I've read it a, a number of times. And yeah, so he's a, he's a tremendous, he's a great character who still have, has relevance to, to new audiences today. Well, he, uh, he certainly, of course, you know, cemented himself as one of the, the great seafaring uh, people of his time. And, and, and David, so have you. you know, it's just been it's amazing to go through your work and your career to see the lives that you've attributed to making sure they've had closure to help solve cases and to you know, give families a sense of, um, of, of closure about knowing where their loved ones you know, were, were laid to rest. So thank you for what you do. Uh, we're proud. Uh, I'm here from Pinellas County today recording the podcast. So we're going to claim you as our own being a USF St. Pete guy, uh, but we're super proud of the work that you've done and appreciate you spending the time to chat with us today. It was my pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for our conversation with David Mearns. So here's the exciting update. Earlier this month, there was a great discovery, and it was one that we talked about on the podcast. You remember David talking about the Endurance. The Endurance is the famous ship 
of Arctic explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton that was trapped in ice uh, and that was sank to the bottom in the Arctic. And yet Ernest Shackleton uh, was one of the greatest demonstrations of leadership ever, saved all his crew, and got back home. So what's exciting is earlier this month, the endurance was finally found. And just like David had predicted, not only was it found, it was pristine. It kept preserved in very cold, deep water in the Arctic. Um, the, the pictures are online. We'll make sure we put it out on Twitter so you can take a look at it. Um, but it's really exciting an exploration. And you should check out, check out David's tweets about it and his relationship with Sir Ernest Shackleton's granddaughter. Really an exciting time for underwater exploration and discovery. And the other update I'll leave you with is David talked about the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and the College of Marine Science and how important it is to underwater discovery and exploring our ocean. Well, we're proud to announce that the Florida legislature included in our state budget over $60 million uh, for the College of Marine Science so we can continue to produce great explorers and scientists uh, just like David Burns. Thanks again for joining us.